me to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. And we'll be looking at verse 26 tonight. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, there's a lot of variation among the English trans- translations on the first half of the proverb there. The, uh, the ESV says, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. The New American Standard uh, uh, says the, the righteous person is a guide to his neighbor. The NIV agrees with our text here. The righteous choose their friends carefully. The King James says the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. So you see all these variations on the on the front part of the proverb. There's uh, this is something that you find now and then in the proverbs. One translation will differ significantly from another sometimes in them. And the people that work on these translations, they're of course they're true uh, true scholars in the uh, original languages. And so it's impossible for somebody like me to figure out what's the best translation. So I don't. Uh, pretend to know it's the best translation. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, in the case of this verse, there are some common themes in all of the translations. So, um, And we can observe that uh, any of the translations that I've just read, they're all sound doctrine that's not contradicted elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, it's reinforced elsewhere in the Bible, all those different um, ways of interpreting it. Uh, It can be shown in the Bible elsewhere that the righteous ought to be a guide to his neighbor and that because the way of the wicked leads people astray, that the righteous ought to choose his friends carefully. And uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, evil company corrupts good habits. So it can also be found elsewhere in Scripture that the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. So all these translations have, uh, you know, their validity in Scripture well, I want to though begin with the second part of the of the of the parallelism, and and you remember what a parallelism is. It's a it's two thoughts that either agree and enhance one another, or it's two thoughts that show us two different things, but but they have a common theme: uh, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous, the way of blessing, the way of cursing. And uh, this parallelism is brought out in two simple phrases that are grouped together. Or it can also be seen in a larger grouping of verses, or it can be uh, seen sometimes in an entire chapter of the Bible, such as Psalm 1, this theme that we have of the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Then we see the blessing that's pronounced upon uh, by God on such a person, it says he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, uh, etc. But on the other hand, the psalm goes on to say, uh, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So we see that that parallel structure there in that uh, uh, poetic uh, psalm as well. So we see this common in the wisdom literature. So we see throughout this wisdom literature that the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous, between good and evil, and many other themes. And uh, so we've been observing these contrasts as we've studied through the book of Proverbs. Now, in this verse, there's a clear parallelism of opposites. And the second part of the parallelism is agreed upon by all these translations that I've mentioned. Uh, The way of the wicked leads them astray, or as the King James puts it, it seduceth them. The way of the wicked seduceth them. Uh, on this, there's total agreement by all the uh, translators. So I want to begin here. The way of the wicked leads them astray, or the way of the wicked seduces them, um, or the way of the wicked is seductive. And how seductive is wickedness? Uh, sin is deceitful, and that's something that we should never lose sight of, that sin is deceitful. It's so deceitful. The devil is a liar, and he's a skillful liar. And he knows what lies work best on on the people that he's trying to deceive. Uh, The greatest minds, the greatest philosophers, the most educated of men cannot outwit the devil. They can't escape his traps. Um, uh, We cannot 
by human reason, discern his deceptions because he laces them. He interweaves truth with his lies in such a way that we're taken in by them quite easily. Uh, Many crooked politicians have learned this method in how they've named their bills that they try to get passed. The name of the bill, and you might have noticed this, that the name of the bill that they're trying to pass might really do, it might really be just the opposite of what the bill actually is going to do once it's passed, what it will ultimately accomplish. That's the way the devil does things. He, he mislabels things. He deceives, he, there's, he, he's, a, he's just a great deceiver. Uh, and we're no match for him, as Luther said. So the wicked are continually led astray. Uh, as it says here, the way of the wicked leads them astray. And a Christian can also be led astray. But God has given us the means of escaping all of these lies from the wicked one. And we have this means, of course, in the word of God. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. Psalm 2, 6 and 7, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He he guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. You see, God has done that. He's given us a storehouse of wisdom, a storehouse of of, uh, the means of discerning the devil's devil's temptations and the devil's lies. So we have the word of God to guide us and to keep us from the seductive deceptions of sin. But we also have something else. We also have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, which gives us this intense regard for the word of God. Uh, Why is it that you regard the word of God? You're all here to hear the word of God. You're here because you you regard it. You want to hear it taught and you want to learn more about it. Uh, what, What has put that desire within you? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. It's one of the means, one of the things that he does to aid us in our Christian life. We, we, uh, uh, we have this uh, love for the word of God, this uh, true regard for it. Uh, the ungodly, though, have no regard for the Bible. Um, uh, they don't believe that the Bible is God's word, and they even hold it in contempt often. Uh, but the lowliest and the most inexperienced Christian believes the Bible is God's word. God has given us this faith to believe this. It's, uh, this is the foundation upon which we build our lives, the, the foundation of, of the truths that God gives us in his word. I remember how Lori and I, when we started out in our marriage, and I was very ignorant, uh, just a brand new Christian, and uh, I didn't want our marriage to fail. I came from a broken home, and I didn't want that for us. And I just really didn't know what to do. And so I just knew to, okay, let's read the Bible together. And so the very first night of our marriage, I remember we opened the Bible and I read some and she read some and, and I prayed and she prayed. And then uh, I said, well, you know, we asked God to help us and to guide us. And, and, um, and God guided us every step of the way. And I'm still hoping that we're going to make it. Uh, be be 50 years this uh, this next February, uh, and so um, and so God has blessed that just a simple uh, simple. I didn't know, but I was doing the very best thing I could possibly do. I don't know how many people that I've counseled in marriage counseling where I've asked them, "Do you read the Bible together?" No. Do you pray together? No. I said, "Well, that's the least you should be doing." Uh, and uh, so anyway, and so. And so it's been the same thing in, in, in making decisions and raising our children. It's amazing how the most inexperienced people in the world are the ones that are called to raise children. It's the young people that raise children, and, and there's so much to learn. And I, I, uh, I just feel like, you know, so many times we felt like we were fumbling through things. And, God, what do we do with this? But what, what would we do? We would take that to the Lord in prayer. We'd say, Lord, please help us to know what to do with this child under this circumstance. And you you know what I'm talking about. You do the same thing. I hope you do. That's the only thing that guides us through is, is the guidance of God. We, we have the word of God to give us direction. And we have prayer committing our ways to God. And we have 
um, and seeking God's direction. And, and God never leaves us, lets us down. And, um, uh, and so even when we made mistakes uh, with our children, God knew that we were trying to do our best and, and uh, God made sure those mistakes didn't end up uh, uh, harming them. And so uh, it's been the same thing with running NAFCO, running a business. I, uh, I run into things all the time that I just don't know what to do with, and I just have to pray and ask God for direction. And he always, he always gives it. Now, there, there are hundreds of books that we could have read, and we've read some of them. And I'll not say to not read them. Uh, we can learn from human authors, and uh, principally as they're, they're drawing their conclusions from the Word of God, uh, we can certainly, uh, we should read them. Uh, but the very best guidance has been the Word of God itself and prayer, uh, praying for God's guidance. So, so upon that foundation of having that regard for Scripture, over time, through study and through application and, of course, the good guidance of the Holy Spirit, we learn as Christians how to apply God's Word in particular situations. So what do, the, what do the ungodly do? It's just the opposite. They apply what seems to be expedient. They apply what feels good or feels right. That's their guide. They listen to one another and they listen to human reasoning and then they decide their course of action. Divorced from the Holy Spirit. Divorced from the Word of God. Um, and, and, in, and in worldly affairs, in, in business, in law, in politics, and other things, they might have great success. But in all of these things that I've mentioned, uh, law, uh, uh, politics, uh, business, uh, all, all, whatever profession that you might choose, and all of these interwoven in all of the, the decisions that they have to make, and flowing from these things, there are moral and spiritual uh, matters that affect everything they do. There, there are moral and spiritual matters uh, for a car mechanic. Uh, there are moral, moral and spiritual matters for every line of work that we do. And, uh, and, and these are the matters that are the most important. And these are the matters that God is concerned about. And these are the matters that we must give account to our God for on Judgment Day. Uh, if I turn the wrench the wrong way on, on, on a screw machine... God isn't going to judge me for that. Uh, but if I but if I violate His word in my interaction uh, with my fellow employees, then God will judge me for that. You see, um, and so uh, uh, so a person might do very wisely in establishing a profitable business, but um, but but he does so uh, by oppressing the poor. Um, uh, or violating other biblical principles. And none of this matters to him or his admirers in the world. They just say, oh, you're so successful. And uh, they, they applaud him. He's successful. But by what standard? What standard is he successful at? What does God say? How will God uh, look at his business success on Judgment Day? Because true success, is how the matter stands in accordance with God's word and not how uh, his decisions have benefited himself. Take a businessman. Uh, he's not a success because he's made millions or billions of dollars, but that's the way the world looks at it. Uh, he's a success if he's run his business affairs with integrity and honesty and mercy, regardless of the bottom line profit. You know, another thing, it's common, uh, that I, something that I've seen, it's common for parents to boast in the accomplishments of their children, their good careers or, or other attainments. And, and people, people boast in, in these things in their children, oftentimes, I think, living their lives through their children. But if the children have not learned Christ, then they're actually in a very pitiable condition though they attain the greatest status in worldly affairs. Um, Matthew 16, 26, a uh, familiar passage, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so the, the lost souls around us 
are in the most pitiable condition imaginable. And the worst part of it, 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 of it is that they don't know it. I'll be talking to somebody, be bragging on the attainments of his child, and I know he's lost, I know his child's lost, and I, I, I pity him. I think, oh, you're, you know, yeah, that's, that's uh, really nice for just a, a little short, brief moment uh, until you have to stand before God. It's nice that they got a good career. It's nice that they've attained this great thing in sports or whatever they've done. But it, it, it is, it is, it is deceiving. The way of the wicked leads them astray, even when they're succeeding in what they're doing in the world. The way of the weak, wicked seduces them. J. Adams says that they do this by precept and by example. Uh, just the way Christians are to be good witnesses and a guide to the lost, so the wicked are to, the, to each other and to, and to us. Uh, we're to teach and to speak right things. That's, that's precept. And we're to demonstrate what we believe and teach by our lives, and that's example. And the wicked do the same. And have you ever noticed how zealously the wicked work to take over the curriculum of the public schools? Have you ever noticed how zealously they do that? They want their precepts taught to the children as early as possible. And it is anathema to them. To have the children taught the truth about creation, about the existence of God, or the law of God, or the values of God. They'll fight. They'll sue. They'll protest as loudly as they can so that their values and their worldview is what is taught in the schools. Because they know that by precept and their example, they can, uh, they can teach the young generation to be just like them. And they want to do that. No man goes to hell willingly alone. They're led astray by these things, and they very much want all others to follow them as well. And then, of course, they, they seduce by example. And I can think of no better and uh, no, no more organized way to seduce than by the example of Hollywood. The Hollywood has been for decades. Uh, Hollywood and the music industry together are very corrupting influences on our generation. And, of course, you add to this the influences that come from the use of the Internet, social media, uh, Google, the false doctrine promoted by these uh, venues. Um, um, many things are promoted, uh, wicked things are promoted by sports, both professional and sports for children. And we go on and on we could go. The corrupting influences around them, the, uh, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the way of the wicked leads them astray. Um, and, and parents, you need to beware these evil influences are, um, uh, and, and, and more than what I've mentioned, you know, there's many more than I've mentioned, uh, they're being pushed upon the young with all the weight the world can wield. They're pushing these influences on the young generation. And, uh, and you need to counteract those influences for the good of your children's souls. And I think, by and large, the parents of this, of this, in this church are very determined to do this. And uh, many of you are doing a good job at it. But just to encourage you to keep it up, to know that these corrupting influences are, 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 are very heavy in our society. They are in every society at all times since, uh, since the beginning of the world. But I think we can all agree that it's grown worse uh, uh, recently uh, in our society. Um, and so, uh, I, and so uh, we have the first phrase is, Translated in some versions, as I've mentioned, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. That's how our version here has it. Um, so all the more for the Christian parent. Uh, even among Christian parents, you can be led astray by evil influences, even amongst your Christian friends. Uh, and something that you need to be aware of in, in every generation is that Christians compromise with the world. In every generation, there are, there are multitudes of Christians compromising with the world, and we need to understand that. Christian parents feel the pressure, even from other Christian parents, to compromise. Let me give you some example. Sports tournaments on the Lord's Day, becoming more and more popular amongst Christians. Filthy language and suggestive scenes and innuendos in movies and Christians watching them. Um, 
uh, insufficient overnight uh, oversight of the Internet, um, indiscriminate use of social media. All these things are ways your children can be corrupted right in front of your very eyes. And these are just a few of the things that you see Christians compromising on. Uh, the way of the wicked seduceth them. It deceives them. And, and uh, these influences are, are there to try to corrupt our society. Uh, here are some thoughts to keep in mind about the wicked and the seductions of this world. And Matthew Henry says this. He says, wicked men do ill for themselves. They walk in a way which seduces them. It seems to them to be uh, not only a pleasant way, but the right way. It is so agreeable to flesh and blood that they therefore flatter themselves with an opinion that it cannot be amiss. But they will not gain the point they aim at, nor enjoy the good that they hope for. It's all a cheat. And therefore the righteous is wiser and happier than his neighbor. You see, as, as Matthew Henry says, their ways seem so agreeable to flesh and blood, uh, even though their ways are contrary to God's ways. Uh, they flatter themselves with an opinion that it cannot go amiss, as, as Matthew Henry says. In other words, it, makes, it all makes sense to them. And God's ways do not make sense to them. So they go about it their own way, thinking this is the right way to handle this. But it doesn't work out in the long run. And there are several scriptures that speak directly to this very deception. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not, they do not know what makes them stumble. And I, I know I quote that passage a lot, but it, it's, just so, it's just so vivid. It's just so, it seems like it's, it's, it's a, the exact picture of my life before Christ. I was stumbling and stumbling. I didn't know what I was stumbling over. And now I know. Proverbs 14:12 There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. You see they've reasoned everything out, they've thought it through, and it makes sense to them. But the problem is that they're violating the principles and the teachings of God's word. And none of our reason reasoning will ever come close to being as wise as God's word. God's word is always right. And um, uh, uh, if, it's, uh, uh, if it's against the law of God, if it's against the word of God, if it adds, uh, if it's uh, not in accordance with the precepts of God, it will not stand. It will not stand in the long run. In the short run, it might. It might. And that is really just an appearance of standing. But it will not stand the scrutiny of God in the end. And uh, so we, we all need to, to have this one thing settled in our minds at all times and in all circumstances. Proverbs 21 30, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And you, you see it all the time. You turn on the evening news. You see it, you see it all around you. But the, and, they're, and, they're, and they're using their wisdom, they're using their wits, they're using all these things against the Lord. Christian, it will not stand. It will not stand. We don't need to fret about that. The laws of God's sowing and reaping are, 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 are interwoven in the universe and they cannot be altered. And these, uh, no matter how powerful the politician or the king or the potentate, he can't make it stand if it's against the word of God. It cannot stand. Uh, or as Isaiah says um, in Isaiah 8:20, the law to the law and the, to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I know I keep repeating that verse, but uh, you, you need to make your children memorize it. But we live in a time when they not only do not speak according to the word of God, but they openly and brazenly speak against it. Uh, Proverbs 12:15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. So we have to bring everything to the standard of God's word, and measure it by that standard before we decide anything. And uh, it is in this way that so often we are delivered from evil. If we pray, deliver us from evil, 
then we need to make sure that we're walking in the ways that God has set out before us. If we don't, then we work against the very prayer of God deliver us from evil. God, Because God uses his own word to keep us out of trouble in many different ways. So as the King James states, that the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. And here's what Charles Bridges says about this. He says, more excellent in character, more abundant in privilege. Look at his birth, a child of God, his dignity, a king. For this, he references Revelation 1, 6, and he has made us kings and priests to our God and Father. He goes on, his connections, a member of the family of heaven, his inheritance, a title to both worlds, his food, the bread of everlasting life, his clothing, the righteousness of the Savior, his prospects, infinite and everlasting joy. Mark the honor that is put upon him. He is the fullness of Christ, the temple of the Holy Ghost, throwing the splendor of Solomon's temple into the shade. Now, I really like that when I read that. Um, uh, our being like, he says, the temple of the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, which throws the splendor of Solomon's temple into the shade. You realize that's the privilege that we have in Christ? The Holy Spirit is more glorious in, in one Christian than the splendor of Solomon's temple. Um, we realize our exalted and blessed state that we have in Christ. No wonder Paul prayed as he did in Ephesians 1.18, as Dale taught recently on a Sunday night, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, if we got a glimpse of that, we would never repine. We would never, we would never be discouraged, would we? We, we would be looking so forward to that. Uh, it's beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. Now imagine, and imagine this. Imagine the best place that you could be on the earth under the very best circumstances. Just think about that. Think about it. Imagine that in your mind, you know, whatever it is for you. Well, remember, and then consider this, that the glories, the bliss, the joys of heaven will be so much greater than these earthly things and not even be fit to be compared with it. But even now, even now, in this life, we have the first fruits of all of our inheritance, of all these things. First Corinthians 3.21, Therefore, let no one boast of men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You see, we ought to live with the confidence of these things. All these things are yours. God won't withhold any of them from you if you need them. And we are living with the confidence of these truths, but we seldom do. I seldom do. Now, we've already considered how we ought to choose our friends carefully, but what about the way the ESV and the NAS render it that the righteous ought to be a guide to his neighbor? Now, this is also very true. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. So not, not only ought we... Uh, to keep our privileges in mind, but we also ought to live in the light of those privileges. Uh, we must not lose our salt. We must not allow our saltiness to lose its savor. Uh, but uh, uh, we're not to put our light under a bushel. In other words, as our text says, we ought to be a guide to our neighbor. Now, we cannot force our guidance upon them, but we can and we should be ready to do our duty in this regard, and as Jay Adams says, we do this also by precept and example. First Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Or as the NIV puts it, 
much better, I believe, for our understanding with gentleness and respect. God would have us to be ready to share our faith when opportunity presents itself. And there are times, of course, when we should speak up, uh, even when we're not asked. And we need wisdom to know what those times are and what to say during those times. So with respect and, uh, and gentleness, we share God's precepts in our own testimonies of God's grace. We, we share these things with others. And then uh, we also, so we guide them by these precepts, the gospel precepts. And then we guide them also by, your, by our example. Have you ever noticed that without your saying anything, sometimes lost people will apologize or make excuses for their language? You ever notice that? And by the way, uh, let me address this popular and wretched teaching that some Christians succumb to, and that is that it's okay to use crude language so long as you don't take the Lord's name in vain. Listen, that is not true. That is not scriptural. I don't know why this is so popular, and especially young, among young people, and it still subsists in the light of such clear scripture and such obvious a reason. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Colossians 4.8, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Why do these foolish young people uh, think that it's okay so long as you don't use blasphemy? Uh, but not filthy, you can use filthy language, but not blasphemy. The Bible is clear about both. It's amazing to me. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus using some of that kind of language? Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. I don't see anything ambiguous about these passages at all. A Christian's mouth the words that come out of our mouth ought to be seasoned with salt. They ought to be gracious words. But the fact is that I knew none of these passages when I first became a Christian, but I also knew that this coarse language was not the will of God. And I didn't have to even know, the, know these passages to know that. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. And I think Christians naturally know this. So I suspect anybody that has to use their mouth in that way and try to justify it and call themselves a Christian. Well, that's an aside, but still, that's that's part of our 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 our, uh, our witness. I mean, I think it's I think it's a strange thing. It's amazing. I I can be around people that I don't even know, and it seems like within a very short period of time, they're using language, and they're kind of looking at me like, wonder why I'm not using that kind of language. But um, and then uh, once they get to know me, they oh, sorry, Al, you know that sort of thing. But um, they know. See, the world knows. The world knows that a Christian is supposed to speak uh, rightly. Um, uh, uh, were you going to say something, Mark? Yeah. 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 And so I think that when they encounter someone who doesn't speak those words, it's like, you know, like an atheist. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, they, 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 it's, it's strange to them. Uh, it used to be not that way. That's another way where our society has changed so much in the last 50 years. My dad used to drive a, a city bus in Orlando, Florida. And my dad could put somebody off the bus if they used foul language. He could, he could tell them to get off the bus. And he, and he, and he actually did do that. And so, I mean, and that's a worldly person. I mean, that's the world, you know. That, but I mean, now, you know, anything goes. But uh, uh, so, so the world really, they they do know. They do know when they're and it's revealed when they're around somebody they truly esteem as a as a Christian, and they they know what language is acceptable. Um, many of them they disregard that with their tongues. They know in the mere presence of a Christian. Uh, will bring that out. And some, sometimes this does make them even more brazen, but usually and more often it does is a subduing influence, like you mentioned, Mark, in your workplace. It, 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 yeah, yeah, they, that's right. You'll have some that'll they'll taunt you with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Right. They'll test you. Yeah, they will. And so and so, you know, we should we should love them enough not to give in to those temptations. We should love them enough to retain our, our integrity before them so that our witness carries more weight with them and for the sake of their souls. Uh, now our Christian, of course, t- our Christian testimony includes much more than our speech. Uh, it's very much about love, mercy, gentleness, kindness, patience, purity, as our conduct influences those around us. And if these, um, and if these be not present then it matters little about how we sanctify our speech. We have to have all these other things as well. We must be a guide and an example in all of the Christian virtues. Now, here's another thing that we're to be a guide to our neighbor in, and that is in faith. Uh, we ought to be sensitive that our neighbor doesn't see us uh, responding or, or behaving in unbelief. We say that we believe God's promises. Do others, do unbelievers see that we actually do believe them? Uh, I love the example of Ezra. In Ezra 8.22, it says, it says, I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. I like Ezra's example. I don't think it would have been necessarily sinful for Ezra to have requested the king to have a guard of soldiers to protect them as they were returning to Jerusalem. But Ezra was sensitive for his testimony before this heathen Babylonian king. He cared about the king's soul, and he cared about the honor of God. And he was concerned to keep a good testimony. Um, uh, and, and in this, uh, the Old Testament Ezra proved to be more evangelical than many evangelicals that I know. Um, and um, Ezra was more concerned about the honor of God and of his testimony before this heathen king than he was about his personal safety. It's a real testimony to Ezra. Are we concerned about these same things? And we should be. Uh, The world says, show me your faith by what you do, not by what you say. And there's lots of things that a lot of times we we get into situations where the world can see what kind of decisions we're making and whether or not we're making them based on what we believe is right or not. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor, it says. I want to say a few things about those translations that put the first part of the proverb as the righteous should choose his friends carefully, such as in, in our translation. Now, I said earlier that we have the word of God. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> applying that word to keep us from being led astray. But it's also true that good friends also help us to stay on the king's highway and not to be led astray. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor. The truth is that the righteous is a guide to all his neighbors including his Christian neighbors. In other words, we need, we need one another. <clears throat> we, can, we, we, can, we can help one another onward in our walk with the Lord. And so God has ordained the church. It's ordinarily not God's will for the Christian to walk alone. We need godly companions. We all need godly companions. Uh, God has made us societal creatures. Everyone is influenced by the people around them, and we're influenced even when we don't feel like we're being influenced. You might not consciously feel the influence of people around you, but we are being influenced by one another. And many people in their pride think that they're above that, that they're free thinkers and they're not influenced by others uh, in this way. Well, this faulty thinking leads them astray in a number of ways, and I want to list four of them. First, the one right in front of us that's tonight in this passage, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. And why? Because the way of the wicked leads them astray. Some people are not careful in the friends that they choose to spend time with, and this is to their detriment. Here's something for you parents. The righteous should choose the friends their children hang out with carefully. It's common for parents to just let their children choose their friends. And, and, and it is to one extent inevitable 
but in another way, not necessarily inevitable. Uh, we need to encourage them to choose good friends. And this can be difficult. We cannot always tell which children are good or, you know, ourselves, uh, or at least not right away. But often it's obvious uh, if a certain friend is a bad influence. Well, obviously, guiding them in this way must be done, especially when they're little. And the older they are, the more difficult it is to guide them in the choice of their friends. And remember the, the proverb of Benjamin Franklin, birds of a feather flock together. And it's amazing how you see this happening. Uh, I remember one of my daughters was uh, hanging around with some kids in the school, and I didn't really know much about these kids. Uh, I wasn't really too worried about it, but I... Uh, uh, you know, I I, uh, I know that they were having a bad influence on her, and uh, but at the school I was sending her to had some really good administrators there, really good people, and they they saw that these were bad kids, and so they they did what uh, what you call campusing, and I don't know about campusing, but they they uh, they told the kids that they can't communicate while they're on the campus. That means they can't even say hi to one another while they're walking down the hallway. And my daughter came home and she was all upset about that, complained about that, how wrong that was. And uh, and I didn't know what was going on, but I just said, well, let's let's think about the biblical principle here. Now, now these people are are, you know, you're under their authority, and there's a sense in which which I am to a certain extent because I I committed them to to the to the school. I said, let's uh, let's do more than what they ask. They've asked us to you to to not speak to them, not to have anything to do with them, and so there, it's completely forbidden for you to have any communication in school. So then I tell you what, uh, you were telling me about these other kids in the lunchroom, um, and I said, why don't you go find these uh, sit with these other girls, uh, these girls that I know she spoke evil of, you know. And I said, I want you to go sit with them, and. Uh, and she, and she, I said, I said, we're, we're going to go further than what they asked. Let's, 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 let's do this. And I was the only parent, by the way, that backed up the administration uh, of all these kids. And so she sat with these kids, and she came home that night all excited. She said, "Daddy, I, these are these girls are not they're not bad like like what I thought. They're really nice." And she was all excited. And it turns out that uh, one of these uh, one at least one of these girls was a Christian. Maybe a couple of them. And they became her best friends, and they were good influences the rest of the time she was in this school. And I, I know it was about that time, uh, some time after that, that she actually <clears throat> came to Christ. And it was these bad kids. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't. But the, the school people knew that these were bad kids, and they wanted to get Sarah free from them. And they, they didn't think Sarah was a bad kid, but they, they figured that she needed to be. Oh, why did I mention her name? I didn't mean to mention her name. Well, anyway, that's the kid. You know who it is. You know who I'm talking about now. Uh, she'll forgive me. But, uh, but I mean, I mean, it, and 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 it really did her a lot of good. And even to this day, we talk about that very decision. And she says, "Yeah, it was a wonderful thing that how God used these people to help me and, and guided me in this." And 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 she she uh, she's still friends with these with these uh, now young women. But anyway. Um, uh, it's just an example of the difference of choosing bad friends or good friends. And sometimes kids need guidance in that. Well, they always need guidance in that. Sometimes it's very hard to give them that guidance. Uh, and you got to be a little careful. You, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be uh, uh, precipitously judgmental of other children as well. As I know some parents can do that sometimes. But I'm just saying that 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 that. that Friends are also, they're just so very important. They're the right friends for our kids. Um, uh, it made Lori and I very glad that we had, we had chosen that school for our children, and, and uh, they proved to be very good friends for our family. A uh, second thing I would mention is another way that uh, we see people's pride take them astray is by thinking that they don't need the church. Uh, this is a common error among uh, professing Christians. They think that they can have a right relationship with God without the church. But such a concept is foreign to Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New. But especially we see it in the New Testament that Christians are to be joined to a church and exercise their gifts in the church. And if you doubt this, 
just read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4. These are just, the, the scripture is, is abundant with passages that teach that Christians are to be united in a local church exercising their gifts. There's, these passages are clear and, and many more besides them. But, but really the evidence of the Christian's obligation to the church, they're throughout the scriptures. And God gives a lot of instruction on how a church should choose its officers and uh, what should and should not be done in its assemblies. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You see, there's an abundant instruction in the Bible about how Christians are to conduct themselves in the church or with their brethren. And nowhere does it teach that membership is an option. It's assumed throughout the New Testament that Christians are members of churches and under the authority of the church. So obviously we should choose our friends carefully. We should choose our church carefully. Because it's in the context of the church that we'll build up those friendships that will influence us in all walks, all in, in, in every area of our life, in every walk, as we walk with the Lord. Third, I want to mention, I want to mention another way that we should be careful about the friends we choose. We need to choose very carefully the internet bloggers that we, that we read. Uh, there are good and godly and helpful internet sources that can help us, but there are also evil ones, uh, antichrists, that use the internet to lead people astray. And I've heard I've heard way too many Christians uh, that think it's okay to listen to the evil bloggers so that they can sort out what's true and what's fake. But it's pride in them that makes them believe they have that much discernment because they can't sort it out like they think they can. Satan is a very good liar, and as I said earlier, he's very subtle. And they're more subtle than most Christians understand. And I think it takes a special gift for those that do debunk them to be able to do so and to do it well. And, um, and, and, and those that do that, they have to listen to them. And I, I understand that. Certainly God has called some of his people to do this. But I believe it's far fewer that have such a gift than what claim to have it. <clears throat> Fourth thing I would mention um, uh, and that is that for those that are single, we need to be very careful how to choose friends of the opposite sex. It is rare to have a, a, a long-term, truly platonic relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And the fact remains that when and if you marry, it will most likely be somebody that you've chosen as a friend. So you should be doubly careful of those friends that you choose from the opposite sex. We should choose our friends carefully. The way it's usually done is thoughtlessly. Because we all want friends. And if somebody wants to be our friend, we don't want to turn them away. We have the opportunity. It affords itself to acquire a new friend, especially when we're young. We're sometimes too quick to choose them as companions. Scripture cautions us to choose our friends carefully. Now, to make sure I'm not misunderstood, I need to make it very clear that we are to be friendly people to everybody. Uh, we can and we should be friendly with all kinds of people, uh, whether we're, uh, they're godly people or not. Why well, say we should be friendly with everybody? We mustn't uh, wish a false prophet Godspeed. You know the passage. You don't, you don't, you know. But we need to be loving. We need to be hospitable. We need to be gracious uh, to lost people and wayward Christians. But we can be friendly in all those things that I mentioned without taking them into our confidence as companions or intimate friends. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another friendship. And that's the friendship that God offers us in Christ. Uh, what grace that God offers us his friendship. That is grace. Grace indeed. God offers us his friendship. How can this be? How can the awesome God that throws the stars in the in, in place and and uh, you know tells the mighty waves of the ocean, "Hitherto shalt thou come and no further." I mean, this God that that that, that we worship, this wonderful, amazing God, 
this awesome God of creation that uh, that he would want us as friends. But he does. He does. Uh, this holy and this righteous God, um, he chooses us as friends. And surely it doesn't appear that he's been very careful in the choosing of us for friends, does it? No. But praise be to God that he has chosen us. A praise be to God that he really is a friend indeed. You know, the best of our earthly friends, they will disappoint us. But God is always and ever faithful and ever true. And he has sworn that he will never leave us or forsake us as we studied Sunday night. Um, one there is above all others, well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly, free, and knows no end. They who once his kindness prove, find it everlasting love. We're going to sing that in a moment. But we should choose our friends carefully, but the truth is that we should choose our friends. We must not attempt to live in isolation. We need to choose to have friends. And after being hurt by friends, there's always a temptation that sometimes follows to live in isolation, away from people. But that is not the will of God for any of us. Now, whether we have one friend or a thousand, we don't, if we don't choose Jesus as our chief friend, then we lose out on the best possible friendship, the friendship of God. And uh, God's grace and love are such as we'll never find an equal anywhere else. For he knows our sins, and he knows all of our failings, and all of our faults, and yet he still loves us, and he still invites us into his friendship, and even into his family. So the question is, are, are, you, in his, are you in his family? Are you, are you friends of Jesus? He's invited you to be his friend. What condescension. Praise God for that. Let's pray.